Hi, and welcome to episode 221 of the Untether podcast. Today we have Casey Masladani joining us. Casey is the owner of Explore Speech. She is a nationally ASHA certified and state of California, New York licensed speech language pathologist, feeding therapist, and orofacial myofunctional therapist. She was born and raised on Long Island, New York, and attended Hofstra University for both her undergrad and graduate studies. She graduated with her bachelor's in speech language hearing sciences and her master's in speech language pathology with a TSSLD certification. Casey has gained experience by working with early intervention, preschool, and school age populations within a variety of settings. She works with a variety of populations and disorders, including children with developmental delays, feeding and oral motor disorders, Down syndrome, autism, childhood apraxia of speech, language-based literacy disorders, fluency disorders, and speech sound disorders. She has received specialized training in autism spectrum disorders, motor speech disorders, prompt training, feeding assessment intervention, myofunctional therapy, the sensory motor feeding approach, the floor time method, play-based therapy, dyslexia intervention, and more. She took a special interest in tethered oral tissues and became an ambassador of the Breathe Institute in the fall of 2022. Quick disclaimer, all information, content, and material of this podcast are the opinions of the speakers and is for the informational purpose only and not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified healthcare provider. Welcome to the Untether Podcast. I am your host, Hallie Balkin. I'm a certified myofunctional therapist, feeding specialist, podcaster, business owner, and mentor. This podcast is all about getting your questions answered and collaborating with colleagues to bring you the most up-to-date information in the orofacial myofunctional therapy, airway, tethered oral tissue, and pediatric feeding therapy space. If you're new here, I challenge you to keep an open mind and join my mission to spread this message far and wide. If you've been around since June 2019, thanks for being a loyal listener. As we jump into today's episode, remember to listen with correct oral rest posture. Tongue up, lips closed, teeth apart, breathe through your nose. Let's get started. Casey, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Callie. So great to be here. So I always love these kinds of chats where we get to talk about, you know, another SLP mom's journey, because obviously I've had mine and, and many of us have had ours. Um, but I want to hear, you know, all about yours and really learn about like your, your back story and how you got to where you are today. Yeah. So, you know, I always like to start with this fun fact or icebreaker that I actually met my husband while I was studying abroad um, communication disorders in Sydney, Australia um, during my undergraduate in 2011. And um, we met out um, one night while I was with uh, other SLPs and he was with his friends. And um, long story short, a few years later, we got married <laughs> um, and we were in long distance while I, while I was in graduate school. Um, so we had quite a journey during those times. And um, after grad school, we got married and we had our first daughter. And then the pandemic happened. Um, so I always love to share that fact because I feel that speech pathology brought me my two loves of my life, which is speech pathology and my husband and then my, you know, my two children, which I have from that as well. Uh, about a year and a half ago, we moved from uh, Long Island, which is where I did my all of my education. My husband's from Sydney. He moved to um, be with me in Long Island. I was finishing my grad studies. Um, I did my CFY in New York City. Um, got a whole bunch of experience, started my own private practice, explore speech on Long Island. And then the pandemic hit, uh, two months later, of course, of course, um, at that time I was doing, uh, I was, I had a in-home private practice, um, at my, in my home in on Long Island. 
and I was seeing moms and their children um, for speech therapy. And I was also running a mommy and me group, which I was really, I loved. Because once I became my mom, I just, I morphed the two together. I was an SLP mom because I just, I just loved everything about, you know, reading books to my kid, expanding her language. And my first daughter was, uh, your typical, your perfect like speech student. Like I would model a word and she would say it. I would model a two word phrase. She would repeat it. She was my little sponge. And we just had so much fun. Um, being together. And my first year with her, I was out on maternity leave and I went back to work and then I just couldn't help. I just wanted to be home with her more. Um, And then of course the pandemic hit and I had so much time with her. So I really saw like that language development and feeding development and everything. And I just was obsessed. I went to ASHA that year. I met uh, Melanie Potok and I bought my munch bug and I just started establishing my my brand and making this niche combination, um, which is feeding speech and language and eventually getting to my story today, I would add in the breathing. But back then, it was just really feeding and speech and language and um, being a mom and SLP mom. Um, so then the pandemic hit um, and I was working from home. That's why I started doing telehealth instead. I, my private practice really took a pause. There was no, you know, communication. Um, and then about two months, three months into the pandemic, I was pregnant with my second baby girl. <laughs> And um, then we had her the, the nine months later and my husband started saying, hey, what if we relocated to California? And I was like, are you kidding me? I just had a baby. What are you talking about? And, you We're know, in a pandemic. Like, pandemic. Um, and, um, you know, so forth. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I looked at him like he had three heads, but, you know, we're, we, we met when I was studying abroad. We travel all the time. We are really spontaneous. But when I became a mom, that changed, you know, but that's it. Mom's brains changed when we have babies, you know, yes. husband's brain didn't change as much. So he, why? You know, you're the, you're, a, you know, the girl I met, you know, takes chances and whatnot. And he really encouraged me to see a life at that time that I had no idea that I could fully achieve, which was my dream come true. Um, living in a beautiful place with a great climate and um, an opportunity for outdoor lifestyle and um, giving my children a really active and fun and well-rounded life. Um, So I listened to him despite my pregnancy hormones telling me no, 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 and um, all that. So we... And he, um, you know, he applied for um, some jobs out here. And to be honest, the first couple were a no-go. And then the last one was actually a promotion. And wow. it all just fell into place. And it was in a really um, great location. I really love where we relocated. So he interviewed on Zoom. This is still pandemic. And he got the job. He flew out here and was looking at houses on and showing me on FaceTime. And I had like, a three-month-old and a three-year-old. And I'm just like, that one looks good. And um, we're still priorities, right? Uh, This was, um, you know, September of 2001. So about a year and a half ago. And um, so his company relocated us. We got a big old truck. I never saw anything in my life like this. I lived on Long Island my whole life. You know, I I traveled, but I went to school in Long Island. I was a suburban girl. Yeah. That was me in Maryland. (laughs) Driveway. And... Same as you, you know, I know your story. I followed it, but it's just so funny how, uh, you know, can't believe those commonalities now that we get to chatting. But um, our furniture, everything, a big team, they, they packed everything. 
our cars on a truck. Yep. And, you know, my family, it was really hard to say goodbye to all my family and friends who I'm really close with. But we knew it was going to be a really great move for us. So I think you're in, you're in LA now, right? That's we're in LA. <laughs> yeah. And you and, love it. And, and, and then, um, so that kind of brings me to um, my early days as my daughter was only six months old at this time. And I had breastfed her all in New York. But then when we moved, I transitioned to formula just because I had so many plates in the air, something kind of had to fall. So we transitioned to formula and we moved out here. And I noticed that she started becoming, she was colicky and she was crying a lot in the car and she wasn't an easy baby. And I don't like using those terms because I feel like this is why moms have shame because if your baby is crying, other people say to you, oh, what's wrong with her? She's not an easy baby. And again, when you have another child who was that typical easy baby, it's hard not to compare. Yeah. Um, and I hated that I was starting to do that, but it was my motherly instinct that I knew something was wrong and I wanted to help her. Mm -hmm. um, so like you, I started doing everything I could, but I, but um, being in a new area, I didn't have my pediatrician. I didn't know any of the medical providers out here. So my first step was pediatrician and I was very much dismissed and it was a very bad experience. And mm -hmm. I actually, so I'm going to take a sip of water. Yeah, well, and, and just to kind of like interject there, I, <laughs> that's common. Unfortunately, um, it's very hard to find a pediatrician who gets it and like, you know, and I'll turn it back over to you, but that's what, even when you have pediatricians who are like all ears and they're like open to hearing it, they still are not in this space daily. And I just, I like had to share this because last week, um, when I was doing a free training and somebody commented or asked a question, like I always like open up for questions at the very end of the training and they said, you know, well, what do you do when you can't, like when the pediatrician just dismisses everything that you say as the provider and like you're referring patients and maybe you are the patient. And I said, look, at the end of the day, with all due respect, respect, because we love our pediatricians, they are not feeding specialists. They are not myofunctional therapists. They are like, if you find that it is by all means, like hang on tight, because that hey. is rare gem that right. you're going to find at the bottom of some random mine out on the other side of the world. Like that is not your norm. That is not what you're typically going to see. And, and if they understand it or they're open to it, or they're able to make the referral, like that's a beautiful thing. But like, keep in mind that as the SLP, as the OT, you know, some PTs, like you are the specialist in this feeding space. You are the ones who've done all this extra, you know, CEU work and and so I always like to kind of like share that because I think especially with parents who are not in our field, like who are not in this space, like they don't realize that they, you know, we see our pediatricians as like the end all be all know all right. and they are generalists. But when you are, and, and there's some pediatricians who are specialists and who are highly specialized in a niche, but for the most part, yeah. a lot of are generalists and there is absolutely no way that they can look at your child in an appointment and know if their feeding skills are good or not. Know if their airway is healthy or not. Know if they are tongue-tied or not, because that comes down to function. And I'll, like I said, I'll back over to you. Absolutely. I'm like, yeah. This is yeah. that conversation that I'm so excited to be having with you because it is a tough one to have because I feel, and I can even hear when you're, you know, start to speak of it, we have to then backtrack and say, but some are, some pediatricians are really good and they yeah. do know everything. You know, we, but we are the specialists and this is a space that we know and we deserve to speak up 
and talk about the normal development and what is meant to occur um, and give this information to our, pa- to our patients and their parents and be respected and validated and heard instead of constantly dismissed. Missed. And, 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 you know, that is one part of my job that I don't enjoy is constantly having to defend myself. So, um, and which is what really prompted me to wanting to email you and like get together about chatting about these topics that are like taboo that no one, and even myself with my things that I like to talk about, share about social, on social media, I have it all in my heart, but I don't want to share something too taboo because I don't want the, the drama because I'm too busy that I, but every night I go to bed and I'm like, but you have to share these things because there's moms out there like you just because like, for example, if you didn't start what you did, I wouldn't be able to know someone's gone through it yeah, like me, like you. So again, I appreciate you beginning to talk about these things. And I now have confidence as well to talk about these topics because they should not be taboo and they should not be stigmatized against because they're real diagnoses that have real symptomatic impacts and affect daily life for my children, myself, my clients, my friends, and so, so many people. Um, so I'm so, and I want to just put a positive spin on it that down below, I even wrote this song. It comes into my head all the time. You know, why can't we be friends? I don't know why. Why we all need to just come together. We all have, you know, I, or be in your, stay in your lane respectfully. You know, yeah. we have our areas that we're niche specialists in and we deserve to, you know, share this information. I don't know any other area that is under such scrutiny. You know, you Google back pain and a million suggestions come up, but you want to talk about tongue tie and everyone's saying that, no, that it's not that. Don't say that. You know, it's just so. <laughs> it yeah. Well, even within our own field, like, even within in our S- own field S- world, S- it's like just as divided. And I'm like, until the speech pathology world can get their ish together. Like we can't, it's like, oh, no wonder everybody else like, uh, you know, doesn't know which yeah. side the conversation to be on because we have so many SLPs who don't even believe tongue ties are a quote real thing or that they don't impact babies after they're done breastfeeding if they do quote unquote believe in them. And I always love like, a quote from um, Daniel Lopez, who is a DO and, you know, he once said like, you don't have to believe in tongue ties or not a religion. Like there is, it is not a matter of believing or not. It's a funk. It's a anatomical, you know, existing inside your body. It just has yeah. to do with whether that's tight or not. And like you said, you know, sometimes we have bash tight elsewhere in our body and nobody's Every other muscle that. in the body that we yeah. talk about, we go get massaged for our back and we have, you know, knots in every other muscle in our body. We massage but we but but, but it's the and the thing is not a thing oh that's i have a whole section on that that i could talk about so yeah, much so tell us first like tell us so your own child right so that kind of was like your catalyst to that was my fall down this oh, rabbit hole so she started suffering from constipation and she was only seven months old and she had only been on excuse me nine months old and she'd only been on formula for three months at that time. And I was making all of her baby food homemade organic because I was at home at the time. And we had just moved to Cali and I was getting great produce, mango. Um, I wasn't giving any carbs much yet. So when she started having constipation, I was very perplexed because I said, this is not typical constipation, like a toddler diet where they're having too many uh, white starches or something. I said, this is unusual. And um, 
I did, did prune juice. I did everything. Uh, added in water. And peas. Peaches, pears, prunes, right? Exactly. Uh, but it was to no avail. And she was having severe, um, which I now know was actually withholding of her bowels, where she would go in the corner. It would look like she was trying to go. But she would cross her leg. Her face would be red. Like, you're like, oh, she's going to the bathroom. But no, she was actually holding it in. Uh, she must have initially had one bout of constipation due to something. Um, again, potentially because she's lip tied. She does not have a tongue tie, which is what she's again. She's the anomaly. She, um, you know, we talk about again, people talk so much in black and white about tethered oil tissues online. If you have a lip tie, it, you must have a tongue. Everyone is an individual and right. everyone, your baby come out and you don't know what's going to happen. They can have. He also has a congenital birth defect called cutisoplasia, which is very rare. It's like one in 100, um, which is just a little tiny, um, actually, scab on um, the tip of her head. Um, it's in the neural tube defect family, but it's actually not a neural tube defect. She's my little miracle baby because it's essentially just the skin. So if it would have been more, it could have been impacting her skull and her brain, but it didn't. So she had a little tiny birthmark here, um, but it's just... I share that as well because it's just a rare congenital birth defect that I had a lot of shame about when I had her that I thought I caused or why do these things happen? And, you know, you don't expect when you have a brand new baby, anything uh, to go wrong. And it's hard on moms. And it's even harder when you don't want to talk out loud about things because you're shameful. Uh, you have shame or guilt feeling like you caused it when that is not the case. Yeah. And, and that's hard too, just to kind of speak to that for a minute, because, you know, uh, however you feel about it, you also then are dealing with like the fourth, trim fourth trimester, right? Your hormones are not in a normal quote unquote hormonal state. Like you're basically still working through all the hormones of pregnancy and delivery and now maybe breastfeeding. If you're not breastfeeding, your body may still be going through these changes to stop producing milk because it's starting to produce. I mean, there's just so much going on that I don't think anybody can appreciate until they've gone through the experience themselves. So to have that in front of you, like if I got a diagnosis of my child who was failure to thrive right now, I probably would not feel great about it. Right. But if she's four and there's something going on, I am far enough away from that baby stage where I'm like, I think my head would be in a very different place. I'd be like, okay, wow. Like, well, what do we do? And how do we approach this? And, you know, I saw that in my newborn a couple of days, a couple of days old. And I was like, I, I have one job. My right. only job is to feed this baby and keep her alive. And the pediatrician just put FTT as a diagnosis on here. And I just opened that on my phone. Nobody told me about it. Nobody's talking to me about it. It's one in the morning. I can't even call anybody about it. And I'm sitting here kind of just going like, hey, I'm failing at life. Right. And so it's like you have that with the hormones. And I think it's just a very real emotional experience that is not discussed. Exactly. Yes. And then, you know, moms kind of like suffer through it in silence because they don't know that they can talk to other people and they don't also know that this is normal and we all go through it in different ways. Um, even if your baby's perfectly healthy, you're still going to go through a lot of this same type, you know, and then so anything is then, you know, maybe not quote unquote typical. You're now down this whole new rabbit hole of emotions and experiences and feelings and, you know, and how everybody embodies that or how you experience that is probably going to look very different one person to the next, but you're still going to go through a lot of like, like you said, that mom guilt, that, that shame. And like, did I do something wrong? Was something that I did wrong before I was pregnant or while I was pregnant or did something happen during delivery? I mean, you just, the question doesn't stop no matter who you Never. are. Especially so when you're an yeah. Over, and especially when you're an overthinker, 
and you know to the FLP world <laughs> exactly um you know that is the um blessed curse of being an SLP I suppose you know we know um so much and it's hard not to yes again have that shame and suffering in silence and being a new mom um and wanting to keep up a persona for other moms but yet being so confused and alone yourself was a really um, challenging time in my life. And I just, that is why I have this purpose now, because 18 months ago, I was in a really difficult spot and I had no one to talk to because my family, um, I love dearly. They don't understand anything in the medical realm. Um, I moved away from all my professional contacts. I was in a completely new area. Um, in a completely new setting as well, you know, um, Los Angeles, the South Bay, where we're, um, I live in, in the suburbs. However, it's also the city, you know, and it's totally different to where I'm coming from, you know, just going into a parking lot with two babies and a double stroller up to go to see a chiropractor on my little baby. This was all new to me. And it, it was hard to stay sane at times. Um, and I just, again, appreciate my husband for being so supportive and um, as well as this SLP community, because if it wasn't for me doing my research and finding the tethered oral tissue community and, and understanding the correlation, I wouldn't be able to start getting my child the help that she needed and then getting into to working and getting my passion back. And like once I started helping others that fog started to lift because I said, okay, there is a purpose. There is an answer. There's nothing wrong with my baby. Everybody's different, you know? And that's, again, my passion. Like we talk about neurodivergency and accepting all people. And I'm so passionate about that. And ADHD children yeah. who are neurodivergent, they're neurodivergent from birth if they have these differences and they're sitting on you. Yeah. So I, that's all my story. I have it kind of, you know, written out here in different um, little folders that are in my mind, I suppose, of topics that I like to um, discuss that I, you know, when I start to talk to people who are not quite in this space, I start talking and they're like, looking at their watch. Okay. She's talking. I so I appreciate communicating. Yeah, no, it's, I, it's, I love how you said that. So you said two things that are like awesome. One, you said there's nothing wrong with my baby. And, you know, when we look at it through that lens, there's nothing wrong with my baby, right? There's nothing wrong with me. There's nothing wrong with this child who has whatever diagnoses they have. At the end of the day, I look at a diagnosis, the way to get insurance coverage, period, end of story. Like whether you're in network, out of network, it can help people. Right. Um, and sometimes it makes sense in the medical community to help drive certain services. But every single child, as you spoke to earlier, or, or person, adult, who may have a diagnosis presents differently. Right. How we present, right? Like you said, your daughter, she has a lip tie. So was like, oh, she got a lip tie. She got a tongue tie. And that is usually the case. But obviously, in real life, we're right. going to have outliers. We're going to have to take where, you know what? The function of her tongue is fine, right? right? The function of her lip. And that's why we always say, you can't just look at a picture. You can't just look at the tissue. You have exactly. to look at function. Okay. What is the impaired function? And I think that really speaks to anybody. Like for me, I'm ADHD. So hi, I have that diagnosis, but that's going to mean something completely different than the next person who has ADHD. And so how does it impair my function on a daily basis? Like how does it impact my ability to parent, take care of myself, like run my household, 
run my business, treat patients? Like, how does that impact my ability to basically get done what I need to get done every day? Like, what are the what's the impact on my activities of daily living, my my own health, like whatever those different nuances are, right? And so that's where I think if we go back to that conversation of just like, there's nothing wrong with us. It's just that there's differences. And the autism community actually was the first, like even being ADHD, it was more the autism community that opened my eyes to this like 15 years ago where I kind of started to go, there's something wrong with these children. Right. Like it's that these kids are being put in a box and looked at as if there is something wrong with them. And as if like we all need to make them conform to some set of norms that somebody out there created that don't actually yes <laughs> I was like I was like okay hold on like let's take 10 steps back here because for someone who's not familiar with this conversation and does not like understand a lot of like what we're talking about I'm like I like to speak in like very like I don't talk in very big fancy words in this in, in talking about this I'm like I like to talk like very you know one-to-one whoever I'm talking to is going to kind of get what I'm talking about right so at the end of the day everybody's different. It doesn't matter if we carry a diagnosis or not. What I do when I encounter anybody is I go, okay, like what's going on? Who are you? What are your goals? What, what is hard for you that you want to work on? Because as a provider, I might have my own ideas based on my background, my knowledge, my training, whatever. None of that matters. If I don't know who you are and what impact you're trying to make in your life and like how you're trying to help yourself or help your child, right? You know, and that's like, I did this training in December where I, like, I was like, yes, airway first was like the title of it. And the whole focus was like, let's look at the airway before we address anything else. But the number one thing I told everybody else, like, if you want to change your practice and you want to change how you impact people's lives, you need to ask that person sitting in front of you, whether it's a parent or an adult patient or a teenager, why are you here? What is it that you're looking for help with? And then you shut up and you be silent and you right. don't inject. You don't like try to drive the conversation. You just sit back. You allow that silence. You give them the opportunity to speak because if you don't address why they're there, one, you're going to lose them. They're right. out the door faster than they've walked in. Like they may, may not tell you that. They're stuck to call you back. Like, and two, at the end of the day, who are you helping? Yourself? Like right. they're not here for you to help you. They're here for you to help them. And so, you know, and and maybe some people don't want help because maybe they don't Absolutely. feel like they need it. And that's okay not too. Not always a good fit. That's okay too. I think everything you're saying is just so important. Highlighting the fact that, you know, that's what we are trying to do. We are looking at patients holistically and that means from head to toe. That's all we're saying. We are looking at everyone as an individual, which is what speech language pathologists promote especially in the autism community and across the board. So I'm not sure why there, again, there is this negative stigma and the only way we can get rid of it is to talk about it. So my, I'm so thankful that you just expressed about your ADHD because I also have ADHD and I wasn't sure if I was going to, I've never publicly stated that um, because my family um, didn't believe I had it um, ever. Uh, Looking back my whole life, you could see um, that there were signs. However, I was one who was very much able to compensate. Um, math no. was my weakness. However, I was great at writing English and I was also very personable and outgoing. And I kind of just was able to fit that mold. And I um, worked my way through school. Um, however, um, different things um, happened in my life. And then um, when I was in graduate school is when it was really apparent. And um, I was diagnosed at that time. But when I talked to my family about it, they didn't 
want to hear it. They didn't believe it. They said, how could you be a, in graduate school? I, I was, I was uh, freshman in college when it all came to the head. Like yeah. I was 19. So, and, and they say this about a lot. There's a lot of females who, whether it's ADHD or even autism or like somewhere on that spectrum, you know, that it gets diagnosed so much later Later. because sometimes it's like, if we have the social skills or we have these certain, you know, aspects that we're able to kind of like, we get really good at compensating, like you said, and, and it's exhausting at the end of the day. Like we don't realize it at the time, but like once you're on the other side of it and like you kind of get the diagnosis and you kind of go like, oh, oh. Oh, okay. It's, it's, it's almost like freeing because you're like, wow. I mean, it doesn't change me like who I am to get the diagnosis, but I feel like I better understand myself. And now I also feel like I now better understand how to find the things that help me function in everyday life a little bit easier. 100%. And it's just, yes, not having that shame and the stigma against ADHD. There's many different mental illnesses. And, uh, that's where I tie into my explore speech, which I, um, Eventually, it will be explore speech and wellness because I want to promote mental health being uh, regular health. You know, it's starting to be talked about, but not nearly enough. You know, every single person on the world in the world has um, a brain and we all have feelings and emotions. So we all have mental health. You don't have to have mental illness to need to worry about your mental health. Um, And I'm very passionate about that because I feel um, there's so much negativity that we don't talk about it. And especially for moms. And again, back to the hormones and all the changes, we need to prepare moms for the negative feelings to let them know it's okay. There's nothing wrong with you. It's going to be okay. Here's something that helps me X, Y, Z to let them know it's going to be okay and how to get through it and give them the skills. And again, yes, support resources. Like why are we so far away from that? Why are we so far away? And everything that I want to start talking about, there's so much shame around. And, and my perspective is I just want to help moms. There's, I understand having to do what you have to do as a mom. And, and you know, we're, we're not perfect. And the, the goal is not to be perfect. There's no such thing as perfection. And I finally realized that after nearly 34 years of life, you know, the first 33, I'd say I was worrying about that. And now I am excited to kids do that for you. My, right. I'm just excited to embrace my myself. Um, as a mom and as a human being, and I just want to give back to others and help people as much as I can avoid the negative um, symptoms or the difficulties by putting in place, like you say, those strategies and the, the health, of course, you know, sleep disordered breathing. We didn't, um, and um, again, in the birth, the zero to three population, this is early intervention is my perspective. You know, we need to end the stigma and end the tone debate um, and talking about non-speech oral motor exercises. Can we just delete that term already? No one's out there doing NSOMEs. We're doing evidence-based practice based on each individual client. Uh, So it's not fair um, for um, others to use us as a butt of a joke um, and to constantly compare good SLP work and then 
slug, you know, versus tongue tie, like we're some crazy cult. Like also like who gave them the license to go and police something that, you know, I think at the end of the day, we forget that so much of the SLP world doesn't have level one evidence. And we're not over here in the tongue tie, OMD, cheating area going, hey guys, you don't have level one evidence. So we don't believe that the work that you're doing with your patients is actually helpful. Like exactly. We're not saying that. We're saying, wow, you guys are doing incredible work and your patients are really benefiting. And we understand that research is expensive and research is 17 years behind. Right. And you can't study everything ethically. So you're not always going to see all these things that you're asking for. Absolutely. Like I bring it in the story. Like I was just talking to, um, I won't say his name because I don't want him to know if like people are doing this, but like a very well-known pediatric dentist in the tongue tie space. And he called me and he called some colleagues and he was like, hey, you know, I want to do some research. It's privately funded. Like I want to hear about what you would want to see. Right. And, and we, I, we talked in circles for like a couple of minutes because I was like, okay, hear what you're saying. But like, how would you even assess that? And if you were to use this assessment, it's never been tested on tongue-tied individuals. So like, they're going to have a problem with that, but it's still your best bet because it's one of the most commonly used articulation assessments. Or, you know, it's like, right, they're what you do. It's going to get picked apart. Like, let's do the research anyways. But I I gave him some ideas. I was like, you know what I see in my practice? I see a lot of these kids not chewing their food properly. I see a lot of them, like you talked about with your daughter of the constipation struggles. And, and, you know, I know that you haven't talked to yet, but like one of the biggest recommendations is Miralax. And if you're in the holistic space, you don't want to feed your kid Miralax as part of their diet every day because you have yes. seen what's in Miralax, you know, and I'm not shaming anybody who wants to use it, but exactly. I didn't, you didn't, you know, then it's kind of like, well, why don't you want to use Miralax? You're like, exact voice as a parent, like, why do you have a problem with me not wanting to use it to give me something else? Right. You know, figure out some, you know, why does this together place, right? You know, so it's all of these, like, I feel like we talk in a lot of circles. Circles, because it's so much changing. I feel, I find that, you know, medical professionals um, and SLPs, it's it's as if everyone has their way almost of doing it, what they know, what they studied, their setting. And I feel that their setting really affects it as well. SLPs who are working in hospitals with um, babies from the NICU or, um, failure to thrive, you know, those early babies or with babies with different syndromes, that's a completely different space than SLPs who are working in homes with yeah. uh, zero to three-year-olds with OMDs. Um, and again, there's yeah. so many different avenues that I'd love to discuss, but that's but the this- biggest issue is the fact that SLPs themselves are confusing motor speech disorders with oral motor disorders. And this is why I emailed you on the other podcast, um, you began to discuss this. Um, and what I'd like to add is that, you know, grad school is heavily taught in motor speech, which is apraxia, stroke, dysarthria. We were not taught anything about oral facial myology. However, why? Wait, if you go to school for physical therapy, you learn about the muscles. Yeah. You know, we, we, I always say it's as if we learned about, uh, you know, the mouth and the throat, but we miss the nose and everything else, you know? Yeah. And even my own work with Mayo, I was doing Mayo and talking about lip seal and, and all of that for my first couple of years. And then it wasn't until a little bit while later when I realized, why are we doing lip seal? Oh, it's nasal breathing. You know, we're all, we're, it's all about the nose too. We, we got to get these kids' noses clear. And now that's why I'm so, again, promoting nasal breathing and like why don't people know this this is important it's so simple to add into your children's daily routine and life and it's you said it you said it they teach in silos and that's also how the medical community 
treats in the U.S., you know, and so everyone's kind of like in their own little, even in a profession, it's like you're in your siloed area. And and that was why, like when I created like my course, I was like, I want people to come in who are not me because I'm not the NICU SLP. I'm not that OT who works with, you know, children. All like I do treat children on the spectrum. I was working with autistic, you know, autistic individuals. Um, children with especially surrounding language and feeding and like they're honestly that's one of the reasons why I felt like deeply in love with trying to figure out the root cause is because of these amazing kids so I was like they're struggling and nobody can seem to help them and I don't like the whole approach of trying to get them to conform to our ways why are we not entering their world and figuring out what they need from us to help them thrive and you know I would get down on the floor and I wouldn't even talk to a kid and I would just kind of see what they were doing and they may be spinning something or rolling something around and I just get down there and I kind of imitate what they're doing and they kind of look over at you like oh like you do what yeah, I do like yeah like me okay like I'll do into actually, my world and like I could do that in a matter of minutes whereas people were like I've been working with this child for weeks and like I can't get them to like do anything I'm like well did you try to connect with them did you try to like enter their space? And I'm like, but any child, that goes for any child. I'm like, if you go in with your own agenda, you're never going to get anywhere because they're not going to, they're not going to connect with you. They're not going to trust you. I'm going to trust you up and trust you. You walked into my office and told me to start doing something. Like, get out of here. Like, who are you? You know, so like the connection and the rapport and the trust has, has to be there with the child, with the family. And like, you got to figure out what that looks like for that kid. Like I've had kids who are not autistic, line up toys across an entire classroom and have an entire meltdown because somebody moved one plate that was touching the fork and the cup. And that didn't make the child autistic. That made the child, you know, they were kind of set in their ways, but that was what was safe. That's how they knew how to play. And nobody seemed to understand that. They just wanted to give them some kind of diagnosis. And I was like, but who is the child? Like, who are we talking about here? And, you know, and this kid, obvious, this not obvious, sorry, this kid also had an OMV and some tetheral tissues and feeding that's stuff. But that's how I was called in. Right. You know, it's, it's, so, it's really so fascinating to kind of like just connect with the human in front of you. If they're an infant, a toddler, you know, older, an adult, whoever you're working with. But again, like realizing that we all have our niches, like you said, and you're going to have a very different experience based on where you work, who you work with. And, and that was part of the reason why I was like, we all have to come together. And yeah. like in creating my Feed the Beats course, I was like, I need to bring these different different individuals and therapists and specialists in because we all have different experiences and see things through a different lens. But if we can come together and create something holistically that offers these different experiences that we can share with other providers in our space, then like maybe we can start to bridge this gap and start to help therapists think more critically and creatively. And I always say it's a dance between art and science. And if we can't marry that art and science together, like you're never going to be able to reach your patients. You're never going to make change. It's just going to be literally kill and drill, throwing stuff at your patients and being frustrated or because you're not making any progress, which is why kids end up in therapy for years at times when they don't always need to be. Anyways, that's my whole soapbox. I'll stop. But no, I cannot agree more. And um, everything that you just described is my passion and what I, why I feel again. And my purpose is to bring it back to the fact that diagnosing this is early intervention. No matter what the child's diagnosis is going to be down the line, whether it is autism, um, ADHD, or none of the above, children need to be looked at from um, the beginning um, with these, uh, looked at these issues from the beginning because this is early intervention. If we are able to help them in any way, it can change the trajectory of their entire life for the good, Um, not to make them conform to others, but to help them thrive 
what is best for them because it goes back to their sensory nervous system. Um, I love what you said about lining up the toys and the way that different children um, act because my daughter doesn't have autism. She doesn't have um, any developmental delays. Um, however, she has a disordered sensory nervous system due to um, her tethered oral tissue and, and prolonged pacifier use. And, um, you know, I got rid of the pacifier about six, seven months ago because I I, as an SLP, I always knew pacifiers weren't great for palatal development and, and maybe speech. But again, you use your own instincts. So my first daughter had, she was fine. She was hyperlexic. She spoke in uh, five word, six word sentences at 18 months. So I was like, pacifiers are fine. This is what moms do. This is what we have to talk about and be uh, honest about. That's our experience. That's, that's, our, that, that's, that's our reality. Part of the evidence-based triangle. Again, I love that you, we're talking about these things because yes, we want a high level evidence, but we also accept all levels of, you know, the evidence is evidence. Levels. Evidence is evidence. And our clinical experience is one of the most important. That's what we share on social media is our tips and tricks, how to get a kid to make the K sound by Yes, doing our prompt tactile cue and showing this, but also because we call it the coughing sound or because I put a toy on my head and I go, and then he laughs. There's no evidence that putting toys on my head and coughing them off is scientifically proven. But I can tell you for the past 11 years, everyone has laughed and it worked and I will continue to do so. And, I and you know, part of it too is like you have combined so many different systems, but what you're also doing is you're helping to bring them back down from a sensory nerve in a nervous Overload. system, right? You're going from like Overactive that active nervous state and that that's what we're talking about. We're here. That is what we're talking about. And that's why we have to de destigmatize this for others who think that we're trying to just overdiagnose or calling tongue tie fat. They need to understand that we care about children and want their lives to be better and give them strategies and things that can help them. That's that's all it is at the end of the day. And we're passionate people out here. We're the, I think once one of your podcasts mentioned, you know, the boots on the ground soldiers. You know, we're the people who are in our free time making spreadsheets like this and who have, you know, books like this all over our desk and talk to our our fans and family about facial muscles, muscles all night long. And they're like, okay, we can like, talk about something now. I'm talking about something else, but I'm sitting here like, no, my life could have been a little bit different if I knew I had sleep disordered breathing when I was nine years old. And when I look back at pictures from when I was three years old, I know I had these problems and I can go into my own story. Uh, that could be another time, but you know, I'd like to bring up, you know, the sleep disorder breathing and, um, population-based cohort study, the, the Bonuk study from 2011, um, you know, and um, Robin Merkel Walsh's um, article um, about diagnosing in the zero to three population, you know, and how it, this is about differential diagnosis, making sure SLPs know the terminology um, and understanding that if we don't, we have research indicating that sleep disorder breathing causes ADHD. So we need to yeah. Get ahead of this and work to help our clients and their families. And that's why, you know, I have my website, you know, Explore Speech, and I have my Teachers Pay Teachers products that um, for mindfulness and breathing and my social media, Instagram, Explore Speech, just promoting, you know, wealthful, uh, excuse me, mindfulness, wellness, motherhood, relatability, honesty, decreasing shame, no stigma. Um, supporting each other, connecting, like this is a dream of mine to, to 
to talk to you and, and share our similarities and our, our vulnerable parts of our personality that for many years of our life, we didn't even know and probably felt pretty bad about. You know, I could go into those stories as well, teachers um, and difficulties that, um, that I've faced and I had to overcome. And I was scared to talk about it, but I'm proud and happy that I have because I know I can inspire others to do the same and to be open and know that neurodivergence is not a dirty word. We, uh, there's nothing wrong with us. Um, everybody is. And if you have time, I mean, I would love for you to go into that because I think, you know, we do talk about a lot of the kids on here a bit, but we don't always dive into, like, I've shared a little bit about my story. I've shared everything, but like, I just think, you know, even for a few minutes, what, like, if you could share with us, whatever you're willing to, like, if yeah. there were some things that stick out in your mind that were really hard as a child growing up that you now look back at and you're kind of like, wow, I wish that I knew, I wish I had the tools. I wish that someone had just kind of been like, hey, I know how to help you. And here's things that'll make your life a little bit easier. Like other things like that or experiences that really yeah. are kind of into your mind. Yeah, absolutely. So I actually always share this with my clients when I start working with them. I don't say that I have ADHD, but I always tell them, you know, hi, I'm Miss Casey and I'm your speech therapist. And I just want to start off by saying that you're super awesome and great at so many things. But one thing we're going to work on is your speech. And everybody has things that they work on. For example, I wasn't really great at math. And I can remember um, my learning difficulties starting in third grade when the times tables started. And thank you, 1990s, for um, those, those charts where they would uh, go across and time us. And um, we had to do the times tables. Um, all this memorization, really. All by memorization. Um, and as soon as that started, I remember not being able to do them and telling my family. And they tried to help me. However, I just compensated because I was really great at reading and I was really social and outgoing. And I was a, even a teacher's pet, maybe one would say. Um, you know, I grew up, I had two older brothers. Um, so I was the youngest. Um, my brothers are 12 and 16 years older than me. So I grew up with a lot of adults. So I was very uh, advanced for my age and I had a very big personality. I, was, I did theater and um, dance and I was always a creative mind. However, again, back to the math was where I, I began my struggles. Um, and then in fourth grade, I remember being in that's when, again, thank you, 1990s, they used to just separate the kids by advanced on grade level and below grade level. Okay, you go, you group go here, you guys go here. So you're like, okay, well, now we can just like well, see. now I people. know, you know, yeah. which group I'm in. And, you know, there wasn't any discussion. There wasn't any um, talk about, okay, you might learn a little bit differently. It was just, you're in the low group. I don't really remember getting any extra intervention. And then I remember by sixth, seventh grade, we started doing fractions and advanced level math. And I just remember struggling so hard and having to go to extra help. And my parents couldn't help me. You know, they were amazing. They were always supportive. However, when I would go to them about my struggles, it was kind of always like, well, you're good at English. You're good at this. How could it be like, mm. it, but it was all compensations. Mm -hmm. um, but I remember in affecting my self-esteem and my emotions. I was always an emotional kid and a very creative thinker. Like I always joke that I feel like I'm in the movie of my own life and I was a narrator and I would be thinking about myself. And I would just, as soon as I knew I was different than others, I just tried to compensate even more. And I just started to focus on my appearance and fitting in and really, really caring about what others thought about me. And um, 
that's what in middle school, that's really hard, you know, um, middle schoolers are really cruel. And when you don't fit in, you feel really bad. And no matter what, you could be the juiciest peach, but some people still don't like peaches. And I learned that the hard way because I just kept trying to conform um, all while still bolstering my creativity through cheerleading and dance and, um, you know, my writing and my academics kind of took took the sidebar because I, I, I'll admit I was very concerned what other people thought about me in, in school and that affected my, my academics and I just continued to do so. Again, I was always great at English and even science. I was really good at, you know, like biology, anatomy, all of that. However, anything that had math, I hadn't had those basic concepts to this day. I always joke. I'm like, catch me on the street. Don't, if someone had a gun and said, do your time, save life. I'd be like, oh, that's it. <laughs> I'm done. Oh, yeah, and this was, this was me though. Like this, was, like my dad was a math whiz. And so like he could do stuff in his head and I would sit down and I would be like, I need help with my math homework. And we would get into like arguments because I would leave the table crying because I'm like, I don't think like you, I need a calculator to do this. Why won't they let me use a calculator? Like my brain doesn't think this way. And like I, I was just like, I was like this. He'd be like, well, how did you? I'd be like, I'd get the answer. And he'd be like, well, how'd you get the answer? And I'm like, well, I don't know. And he's like, well, you have to do your work. And he's, you know, or he would just get the answer. And I'd be like, how'd you get the answer? And he'd be like, I just got to like this. And I'm like, hey, slow down. Like that makes no sense to me. Like I just, my brain is not thinking numbers in that way. And still numbers are hard for me. Like I, I, I agree. And I. By um, high school, um, you know, I was still doing well in school. I had, you know, A's and B's and every other subject except math was like C's and D's. Um, and then once it was like AP classes and like getting ready for college, you know, it was a big concern. Um, somehow I, you know, I made it through. It wasn't the top of the class because I wasn't great in those subjects. Um, but I, I went to uni- Hofstra University um, and I started off, which I really um, appreciated. They had like, um, my initial classes were kind of like a transition class just because my GPA was like an 87.9, which again, not bad, it was like a B plus, yeah, but yeah, yeah. The, the scrutiny and the way the system uh, of college and testing, and they don't look at you as a whole person. And I, my GRE scores were very poor because of my poor math. Um, so, you know, it was hard for me to get into a college because of this, but again, so many great strengths. However, they look at people on a piece of paper and not as uh, individuals. So I, I, I made it to Hofstra, great success. Um, and I was originally going to go for teaching. I always loved, you know, working with kids. Wait, I was going to go to teaching too. I started yeah. a business and then was like, nope, these classes are not for me. So I switched to teaching. Yeah. And then ended up becoming a speech pathologist. Same. So I was, um, you know, going to Hofstra, um, doing well. And I started, I was, I had got a job as a nanny part-time because, um, and I remember nannying and the ch- children had speech delay and the SLP came into the home and I was like, wait a second, what's her job? And the, my, the people I was nannying for said, oh, she's an SLP. It's a speech language pathology. And I said, what? That is, that is my dream. That's thick. And I, I looked it up and I remember I was a junior. I was nearly about to graduate almost. And I switched my whole major in true ADHD fashion and I became completely hyper-focused. Off the like, Yeah. Wait, my aunt was a speech pathologist. I had no idea that's what she did. No idea. And I went to intern with her at like this after school kind of program that she ran in a private school for kids who like some of these kids were getting like kicked out of their elementary school programs. And I fell in love and I was like, what is this? I need to know about this. Like, why did I not know what you did your whole life? And same thing. I was just like, oh, when you were changing from because I'm like, I don't really want to be a teacher. I kind of like need something more like 
entertaining. That's going to keep me on my feet every day. I can't be in the same classroom every day. Like I'm too ADHD for that. So like, this seems like a dream, right? Oh, how funny. That's exactly the same. There is a, we have some parallel. And I always joke. I was like, I always joke. I'm like, I know SLPs and OTs are like not math whizzes. Like we did not get into professions because we're good at math. And, and even speaking to like, you know, I compensated and did really well throughout school too. But by the time I was like a sophomore, like junior in high school, I was like, how can I, I basically went and I talked to uh, the administrators. I was like, what are the courses that I absolutely have to take to graduate? And what are the courses I don't have to take? And so all my friends were going, like, I took, some, I took AP English and AP whatever, and like some AP classes and everything. But I didn't take um, a lot of more advanced math classes. So I never took calculus. Mm-hmm. I never took like, because you didn't have to, but nobody told you that. I'm like smart enough to like, you're like, hey, how do I not do instead? And so I, I did take like macro and microeconomics because I think that that was like, like an option. And I ended up getting tutored through that because that was hard for me. Yeah. One of them was harder than the other, but it was hard for my friends who were like, not, you know, struggling. Right. Too. This we all had it. Like we had a grip tutor. It yeah. was like, what? I ended up being, so I ended up doing like, uh, like, two periods in the morning on like where I I was an assistant to the assistant principal for one of the periods and then for another one I was an assistant in the attendance office and it was part of like an internship and then my senior year by like I did an afternoon internship working for like a family friend who was an event planner and I got to leave after lunch and go to her home office and basically I was already working for her on the weekends so it was like I actually just got to work in her office like during the week but I figured out for me like Amazing. what I needed to do. And then that way I was able to like graduate with like a 4.05 or whatever the still silly numbers were because I figured out a way to like basically work the system and get there with meeting all my requirements to graduate. Oh, and, and what was best you, for you? And it was and just that, like, you know, and, and you know what the silliest part was because of my internship, that's where they exposed us to things like balancing a checkbook. And, you know, it, it was from me, it called it like remedial math. And I'm looking at the kids who were going out in these activities. <laughs> quote unquote, like remedial math on. that's like, that's required for you to have an externship or, you yeah. know, apply to the school. And I was like, wait, you guys are dumb. Like everybody needs this information. This is not right. It's exactly. real life math. Like the calculus is remedial. Like, duh. You're not going to do anything with that unless you actually are like going to school for like one or two things. 100%. We're going to need this information. And that's my biggest, like, I think going through that, like now looking at like my seven-year-old who you know, math is not easy. And, you know, my husband is very much so like, oh, we got to get her. Like, she's got it. I'm like, dude, she's on grade level. Like, what more right. do you want? Like, she yeah. do freaking fantastic. Cause she's like yes. very, very advanced with like her reading and writing skills. So like her math yeah. struggles to yeah. um, keep a tutor so that she, someone else is helping her basically. And she's doing great. And I'm like, at the end of the day, I'm like, do not say a word to her because we do not define her white face on her mouth. I could care less if she was below grade level, as long as they're passing her to the next grade so she can continue moving up. I never want this to be a thing that she sees as a weakness because I don't think it's ever going to be something she needs in her life. Like after she knows her numbers and she can do some basic math and she knows her shapes and like she she can, you know, fit some things together in a room functionally, like I'm good, like move on. Exactly. And it's so great that we're talking about these things because, again, these are the things that people don't want to talk about because we all, uh, you know, imagine um, life in this little box and we're supposed to check off the the, the boxes and we rush our kids to grow up and, and achieve all these things, but we don't look at them um, as individuals. And I want to end that because there's so many people out there who are working to break cycles and to treat 
everyone with respect and individuality and understand that, you know, life is not like this finish line we're trying to brush towards and, and, and check all these things off. Um, and, and when we talk about your wonderful successes by what you did, as you just described, you are very successful now. You're a speech language pathologist and feeding therapist, and you're very fulfilled as well, which is very key. We don't teach kids. You can be happy in your career when you grow up. You can do something you love that create that sparks your creativity, that fulfills you, that helps you give back. Um, it doesn't just have to be you have to grow up and become this because of that. You know, we we have to end that. You know, even like asking little kids, "What do you want to be when you grow up?" Like. They don't know yet. Well, let's just let everybody find out. And like, why don't we just say, what makes you happy? Because yeah. when you grow up and you are struggling, you know what you think about? Well, what did I like when I was a kid? Oh, yeah, I liked to do cheerleading and dance. So let me put on uh, some Disney music and dance like crazy on my kids and get my adrenaline pumping. And now I'm in a good mood. Yeah. And that's not weird, you know? Oh, and no. people, everybody should be doing these things so they stay regulated. Um, as we're talking, I was holding this little squishy ball, you know? I'm a grown-up woman, but I can use a sensory toy to regulate myself when I'm a little bit nervous doing a podcast. I've never done such a thing before. Yeah. Uh, we have to talk about these things instead of act like acting um, under a facade as if we're all um, these robot individuals who don't have any emotions um, and can just succeed under any um, circumstances. Yeah. Um, you know, we have to, even our kid, our clients, you know, some days they may be sick. We can't do speech therapy if someone's not feeling great, you know, like we have to look at patients holistically and get to the root cause. And again, getting back to the term holistic, I remember on the previous podcast, when you were discussing this, I'd like to just highlight to other professionals and families, like the word holistic doesn't mean far out hippie. It means whole body. We're just looking at people from head to toe. And I want to, I coined this like Phrase, you know, if we as speech pathologists or medical professionals neglect to look at the child's mouth and the tissues in there and the nose, we are teaching a kid to ride a bicycle without looking at the bike. We're just putting them on a bike and just go, you know, and the bike's breaking down, but they're still riding. Okay, they're fine. They got their articulation. They're feeding. They're okay. They're okay. Oh, but then they're going to be 34 years old and they're going to have TM. I'm still going to be on the bike. And in the bike, you know, the brakes aren't working. <laughs> um, you know, I try to make yeah. these little phrases and, um, you know, ways to explain it in a positive way and to get like some positivity and lightness back into this topic because, you know, again, there's nothing wrong with these kids. There's nothing wrong with having a tongue tie. There's nothing wrong with needing support and it can help people breathe better and like you say help our patients not just survive but to thrive and you cannot you can thrive in your health but I also think your social emotional and your creativity needs to thrive to be the best mom parent person whomever because that is part of our brain our sensory nervous system is our our entire being and if it's not regulated we're not going to have a um, fulfilled life. You know, there's going to be ups and downs and we have to talk about the low days, the high days and all the in-between um, because mental health is health. And that's why I created, you know, my company Explore Speech to help people explore the connection between speech and language, feeding and breathing because they are 
different entities. However, they are all one and they're all interconnected. And it is the speech language pathologist's job to differentially diagnose these and to share information online about the differential diagnosis of. It's not just motor speech, articulation, and dysarthria. It's rarely dysarthria. There is weaknesses and oral motor dysfunction in children. You know, it doesn't always have to be dysarthria, excuse me, not rarely dysarthria, but there's this whole tone debate. You can't change tone, this and that. I don't understand why we're not acknowledging and sharing the research, uh, the fact that children can have low tone. Everyone has differences in tone. That's a low tone. We all have differences. I have high tone in some spots, which, you know, why we all have tone differences. The fact that there's SLPs out there sharing, you can't change tone is blasphemy to me because it's like, yes, you can. Like, you know what I mean? You can't change if you had a stroke and there's a, you know, excuse me, I'm getting off topic. I'll erase that. Oh, but like to your point, right? So there's things that you can do, right? So like I, for example, my aunt was said to my mom when I was little, she's like, I is Hallie the lowest tone baby I've ever seen. Like I did a lot of my gross motor things late. I didn't roll or, you know, and my mom's like, oh, I took you to the doctor. And like, you literally rolled over like in the waiting room and you were like three months behind. And then the same thing happened with like your other gross motor skills. She's like, you also said hi for your first time to a stranger in the pediatrician's office. Who's like, basically I had to take you to the pediatrician or a specialist and you did the thing in the waiting room at that appointment because you're like, fine. I just show it like, off. You think something's wrong with me? Like, I'm just going to do it for you and leave me alone. Um, I'm like, that's basically how I go through life. Don't tell me what to me. do. I will do it on my own time. And oh, if you do it, like, it's not going to happen. Yeah, no, but it's it's one of those things where I tell people, I'm like, you know, the whole tone debate thing, I think that there's a lot of confusion around it because you see a lot of professionals who don't understand tone, whether it's in our space or outside of our space. Speaking about it is if like, oh, we're going to change tone. We're treating tone. And so like what I like to tell people is, you know, whether tone is something you can you can change or not change. The way that you help someone who is low tone, for example, is you build muscle strength. So you have to work on the muscles to support it. And then we can get to a point of being functional and truly functioning. And like you said, like my phrase of like going from, from surviving to thriving, like it's really caught on. I'm starting to see more people use it. And I love that because I'm like, yes, because if we are we're struggling. If we're just focused on survival every day as parents, as humans, as patients, as whatever, like that's not, you're, you're working from that fight or flight. You're not in that rest and digest, right? right. You're not in that healthy nervous system. That's going to allow you to make change. But if we can start focusing on like, what do I need to thrive? What do I need to function? Right. That's where that whole paradigm shift starts to happen where we kind of go like, okay, deep breath. Let's put ourselves into a state where like, we can actually even have this conversation and where we realize this is possible. Okay, now that we're working there, let's talk about how we can shift from where we are now to where we would like to be and what that requires. And so it's the same thing when it comes to motor speech disorders or it comes to tone or, it co- you know, everybody talks about things like they're so black and white. Exactly. We're talking about the human body here. Like there's so black and white to it. And yes, you know, you, if you're going in for a surgery, you want the best surgeon who knows their skill and they're going to be really good at, you know, yes, there are specialties and there are people who are going to hone in on things and they're going to be so black and white about it sometimes because that's just how they make sense of it in their head. But I can guarantee you, like when a surgeon gets into the body, it's not always black and white and they have to know what they're doing. And with experience, they will because then they're like, oh, I've seen something similar to this before. I kind of have an idea of where to go. 
what you watch these shows, which I know is like not real life, but surgeons have conversations like in the room to be like, okay, real life. Yeah. Like you're kind of like, you're having to shape shift in the moment. And that's like what we do. That's why I say to dance between art and science. Like we're not surgeons, but we are working with, we are medical providers and we are working with humans and we're talking about health. And that is like, you've talked about every facet of health here. Like just because we're not a neuropsychologist or a psychiatrist or a psychologist, we still have to be aware of the mental health of the patient sitting in front of us. And the fact that, like you said, we all have a brain and mental, you know, the mental component of it is there for everybody. We don't have to wait till there's mental illness to refer somebody before or even talk about it. Right. So like, while that may not be my scope, if somebody's struggling with something, I may not be going and saying, hey, you have the XYZ diagnosis or you need this approach or you need that, but I'm going to sit there and listen to them and I'm going to take in what they're saying and I'm going to go, okay, this person really needs this for me right now. And this is what I can offer from my area of expertise and from my scope. And if I need to refer them somewhere else, I will. But it all starts with listening to that person. Like what is, what is their brain telling you right now? What is their brain, their face, their body communicating to you right now? And you would think, I always go back to this, as SLPs, as speech language pathologists, you would think that we would be the best at the communication aspect. But I am telling you, so many SLPs struggle to actually communicate with their patients. And, and it's like, that that and, and is like the funniest thing. That is the funniest thing. And I'll bring that back to my story with my struggles. So grad, as we know, graduate school is very rigorous for SLP. And as a person with ADHD, I did struggle. However, at that time, I had worked so hard to um, not allow myself to struggle by, you know, adapting some unhealthy um, habits like studying for hours on end not talking to anybody locking myself in a room you know dream and I wasn't going to let anything get in the way of my dream and there were many times where um you know professors told me I don't think this is for you uh you're not smart enough um you um maybe you should go back to teaching that that might be a little bit easier for someone like you um you know and I I hate It's hard to talk about these things because I'm not trying to, you know, out anybody and I love my university. However, there were experiences where I almost, you know, there was a time where I had to retake a course, which is funny because it was pediatric language disorders, which is what I am now um, 11 years experienced and done well in. Um, um, So anyways, I was always very a great clinician, though, despite my challenge in the pediatric language class, which is where we evidence-based practice uh, assignment, which is why I was struggling because the late, the courses were structured with like four assignments. Yeah. And if you do bad on one, so s- s- to make a long story short and to talk about why research changes and we need to be constantly abreast of research and not focus too much on that level one, that project was on PECS, mind you. I almost failed out of grad school because I didn't do a great job oh my gosh. proving that PECS was amazing. We now know PECS is horrible and no one's doing PECS anymore. And we're yeah. High tech AAC. Holy what does mo- that show you? Yeah. You know, um, I thought some shit. Is that that is that? I remember sitting in my academic uh, in my professor's um in office hours and her saying, you know, I don't know, I don't know if this is the field for you and me. And all of this time, I was ne- no one in my um. I had never told my university I had ADHD. I just was suffering in silence. I went to the doctor, um, but nobody you know. I didn't have any accommodations. Same. I didn't. Um, my professors didn't know. Um, the only thing I at once um, shared with a professor was that, you know, I had some difficulties at home um, as well. And 
completely brushed off, but there were there were two professors who had faith in me and, and understood where I was coming from and knew I would make a phenomenal clinician because like you say, that connection. I, for some reason, not to toot my own horn, but it's as if children can see into my soul. I'll be out at the park and kids come up and just hug me because they know I promote connection first. Like I get down on my knees and I say hi to any kid. I don't say hi from up here. And, you know, there's been multiple times where I've just been out in public and I'm talking to my own kid and another kid sees me and they're like, hey, and they try to just like start talking to me. And I'm like, you know, I talk to kids like they're human beings. I don't talk down to them. And um, so my that's again, why I'd like to talk about is the disconnect between the grad in graduate school and how we don't we're not taught any of this. And the real life. Like grad school is like that you take your classes over here and then the clinics over here, literally totally different buildings, nonetheless, yeah. Yeah, than mine. And I know this is a very similar experience across the board with other SLPs about not learning about OMDs and having a disconnect in the clinic, regardless across the domains, not just OMD. So this is a very important topic. Um, so again, I was great in the clinic, like my supervisors um, really supported me. I remember I created a um, infant observation scale. I was always like going above and beyond because I was just always so obsessed with everything and hyper fixated on everything. I started doing EI and I was like, I don't want to just do therapy groups, write reports, go to grad school, study to the practices. I also want to invent the Kim, the con, my last name is Connus, the Connus infant observation scale. And I worked with my supervisor to like make this checklist about how we could better, um, document infant skills. This was when I was only my first year in grad school. You know, I've been a people don't realize that the ADHD brain, like not those brains and the brains that have given you everything that helps you function in your daily life. Like everything from your phone to your computer, to the car you drive, to the music you listen to, like so many of these highly successful individuals have these ADHD like presentations or even autism. Right. And so, you know, at the end of the day, it's like, why are we trying to shapeshift people into these little boxes when like this is actually our future and like we we need people who are innovative we need people whose brains work in a mile a minute who are constantly going look should i do this idea or that idea and it's like okay let's just quiet the mind for a minute hallie you know but it's like that's where for me i have to reel it in because people come with come at me daily with like 10 <laughs> ideas per person plus i have my own ideas and i'm like at the end of the day i'm like there's just no time we're in a humans in the world to do all this so like <laughs> we actually need to do like right now today like let's focus right but no i love it because that's that is what brings change and and that's where a lot of these highly educationally based individuals miss out because they they like people go for PhDs on like the clinical side. So people there's right. the PhDs for like business, um, actually for SLPs, which I think is super cool. I never knew that was even a thing until like a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but people who go back to do like just research and then they want to sit here on social media and forfeit you because and they're not even working with patients. Right. Like talk off. Like you have the experience to talk about this. So just because you have a PhD that you're getting or you're doing some sort of research or you're going to have a PhD after your name, that does not make you superior to the person who works in this specialty day in, day out, treating hundreds or thousands of patients. Like just, you know, and that's where I think needs to be discussed. Exactly. Because people just see credentials and they automatically think credentials mean like better or more experience or, and so that's what they they always say it's alphabet suit, all the letters after your name. And right. I, even, I have certifications, but they don't even put after my name because I 
don't, I don't want people to look at me as that certified person I with know. five certifications. I want them to look at me for who I am and for what I offer and for the experience that I have. And I don't think I need all those extra letters. And people will go like, well, why did you create a certification, Hallie? Why are you creating another one? I'm like, because people are asking me for it. And because I am able to better shape education in a way that I think is functional and that actually mentors individuals and to get further into their specialties. And so if that, I, I will tell you, I'm the worst salesperson when it comes to like my own business and certifications. So I'm like, you don't need the letters, people. You don't need the extra certification. You're already an SLP. You're already an OT. You're already a PT. But like, hey, if you want it, by all means, go for it. You know, for me, what it really means is a deeper learning in right. a specialty. However, most certifications don't offer that. Unfortunately, you pay a lot of money, you invest a lot of time and you still are more you, confused at the end than when you started, end. especially in the Mayo space, which is why I was like, all right, you know what? Y'all are asking for it. I feel like I got to do it because I like, we need to change. We need, we right. need change in this space. We need people to actually like deep dive and understand and get mentorship and also feel safe because if you don't feel safe, you're not going to learn. So that's got to be a part of like, you know, the whole educational trifecta, if you will, as well. But anyhow, absolutely. Can't again, um, you know, say how, what a tremendous job you've done um, in doing that, in doing so, and how I hope to follow in, in your footsteps. And um, I've been creating products to, um, you know, digital books for parents, because I feel uh, I could talk about this till I'm blue in the face. And sometimes I'll leave and I feel like my parents of my clients still aren't always fully quite sure. Um, and I'm teaming up with another colleague um, here in California um, to write um, this ebook um, that I've already started um, and a children's book, um, Franny Gets a Phrenectomy, you know, helping kids understand these um, topics and more products to end the stigma. And, you know, I'd love to collaborate with you again on the podcast um, and talk about more um, ways that we can do so and collaborate with universities and get this information out there um, to change, to make change for the better, um, to make the world a better place at the end of the day, because we're supporting the sensory nervous systems of ourselves, of mothers, of families, and of children, because individuals with OMDs have very different sensory nervous systems than those without. And I've seen it in my own daughter. And I know for a fact, if I didn't advocate early for her, she, her trajectory would be very different and she would have much more behaviors that would make her look like a quote unquote bad kid. And, um, I am grateful um, that I did, that I was able to figure out what I needed to do to, um, and we're, it's still a journey. We are not done, you know, um, but again, promoting this concept to other SLPs and to families. I mean, my main goal is just to, 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 to do that. And with my teacher pay teachers products to kind of just, you know, have SLPs who are confused and, and you know, understand um, the differences between and the terminology and referencing the studies. And here's the research. Because yeah. there is research. I mean, I know we can talk about like- entire journal of oral facial myology. I don't understand. Like, you know, again, I'm sitting with textbooks on my lap. Um, well, in my house, what do I have to do? Do a song and dance? Um, you know, um, and I- Mayo has been around for 117 years, people. Exactly. And it is not new and there is a ton of research. So yes, like, thank you for plugging 
Yes. And I, and I just wanted to say, yes, that, you know, the field of speech language pathology already has several strikes against it. One being that we are extremely broad and no one knows what we do. It's a joke, but it's really not funny because we're very important and people often don't know what we do because we do several different things. Um, And the lack of diversity in our field, you know, we already have this major issue that um, we do not have a diverse field. There's not individuals of um, color and it's just a predominantly, you know, white field. We don't have enough voices speaking up. Um, and I feel this the same with like the neurodivergence. It's coming. Neurodivergent individual professionals such as ourselves are sharing our stories, but it's not as common. Most often people still um, are not quite open with their stories. And, you know, Another strike, you know, ASHA, our governing body doesn't always even embrace us. There's sometimes misinformation on our own website, unfortunately, um, with the OMD space that, and and there's, you know, there's these therapists out there like Robin Merkel-Walsh and yourself and, you know, Dr. Zaki at the Breed Institute and, and everybody else, I could go on forever, who is like working so hard to get these things published. And to to change this, and I just am so inspired by um by all of you, and I want to do the same thing, you know, and and be that person who helps others and, and puts the research out there. And I and I have my own research that I can you know publish. Like what I've seen is unbelievable, you know. Starting post pandemic, fifteen out of fifteen clients having breathing dysfunction. You know, 10 out of 15 having tethered oral tissues, you know, that sense something that is a pink study. You know, this is a little off the, you know what I mean? Um, no, but I think that's incredible. Because disconnect, think, you know, yeah. this is just my more little line about like how, you know, the field of SLP has, has strikes against it and yeah. enough is enough. You know, we need to work to, just to, to at least stop. Those are very big topics that are being tackled and we need to talk about the one topic we can tackle right now and just end is the non-speech or motor exercises debate and, and acting as if there's SLPs out there doing inappropriate non-evidence-based therapy. If there's an SLP out there just blowing horns and bubbles and not doing anything for a purpose, talk about that SLP. Right. That's not 99.9%. That's not 99.9% of SLPs who are using those tools in conjunction with several other techniques, such as props. You know, I have training in multiple different areas that I use all together. And it's offensive to me when I see people, you know, laughing about using oral motor tools. That's another thing, destigmatizing oral motor tools in general, because the children with the sensory nervous disruptions, they need that. They need that. And the children with autism, autism who are older have chewies. Maybe if we started checking their mouths. And- wait, but wait, why, why is it okay to give a child who's teething a chewy, but you can't give a child whose nervous system needs to be regulated? A right. And, and then it's different. This is, this is a, a point of contention myself as well. You know, we always want to do functional. Uh, we want to use things that are functional, right? So some therapists will say, why would you use a chewy when you can use food? Okay, well, my daughter has constipation. How much crunchy snacks would you like me to give right, her? Right. Or, or okay. how it's going to vomit. This, can they see the food? So let's let's start a therapy session let's with just, vomit all, in, all over them. That's really going to set their nervous system up, right? Like, how about most kids are not always ready? Ready, they're ready to food. Yes. food. We had, Why don't we meet the kid where they're at? Because to me, a therapist who is so hard, like, excuse my friend, hell-bent on using foods 
instead of non-food items, tells me that that therapist had their own problems that they are projecting on their patients. Thank you. You need to be able to look at your patient and, and understand who that patient is and what they're ready for. And the best therapists are going to go, you know what? I may have been taught one way because I went to the University of Maryland and oral motor was a dirty word. Like we did not, hey. oral motor was not okay. And I did not learn any of this stuff there. And like, I loved my school and I loved, like one of my professors said, the best therapist can do therapy out of their purse. And that has always stuck with me. The, another one of my advisors basically took away my whole checklist of, checklist of questions walking into screen or to assess my first kid with um, the fluency disorder because she was like, what do you think a 16 year old is going to do if you walk in with a clipboard and write down everything he says? And I was like, literally just the way. I didn't know she was going to do that. And I was like, but these are the kind of people who did help shape me into yeah. being the best clinician. And so I do value them and I value what I learned, but I also realized that that university program did not believe in oral motor. They did not believe, you know, it was like, we only learned adult dysphagia. We did not hey. learn pediatric. And so, and that's so that motor states, apraxia. We yeah. did a whole semester on the differences of apraxia versus dysarthria. Yeah. yeah. And I thought, yeah, we're one minute now. I know where people are coming from. Like, I understand that. I understand why. I understand that. But also, if you are so stringent that you cannot break away from what you learned 15 years ago to understand that you know, think times change and also this was present, but it wasn't taught where you went to school, then I don't know how to help you, but I will show you grace and I will be here and ready and willing to talk to you when you want to have a conversation, because I hope the day comes that that happens for you because it's all about the patient at the end of the day. Exactly. That's, I love that point. Again, bringing it back to the patients and the fact that, you know, the same thing with my university and I love Hotstra. It brought me my love of my life. And so many good things. So this is, again, not knocking anything, we, but we must talk about things in order to inspire change. And if you are one-minded, you'll never inspire change. And you, you have to be open-minded. Um, so in Hofstra, we took articulation and phonology was one class and motor speech disorders, which, yep. and dysphagia. Again, yep. we talk about swallowing, but we totally miss feeding. Again, what about this part, people? We talk about the... This road for I can, I can read an MBS, but I can't, I don't know how to teach how to chew. Kid, how to chew and talk about the fact that there's a rotic, uh, you know, rotary chewing should be developed within the first three years of life. And if yeah. these kids, three years of life, and if these kids are six years old and they're still biting like this, there's the problem. You know, uh-huh. dissociation, elevation, depression, all these things we did, we did not talk about. Um, so, what was my point about that? Um, you know, it's the fact like that universities are great, but they're not teaching even still today. Oh, yes. And, and the fact that it was a dirty word you said. Yeah. Yeah. I remember the the class where they told the tale of the therapist who was selling products in oh. mandate boxes. This is how it was told to me. I remember. Right. Oh, we were just given articles to read that basically, you know, was all in locks, like his whole camp. Then right. with all we were shown, we weren't shown both sides of the story or voice, we were never introduced to both sides of the conversation. It was just right. like, In and fact, so just oral motor's dirty. Don't ever do it. Okay, goodbye. Moving on. Yes. Is that, so is that like where the controversy started? From well, Gregory Laughlin, yeah. The that's article the that he sent that, the article. And that's still like, that's what a lot of the therapists today still that's call That's what they're calling off of. So that's- We're like, you realize this is old, right? Like you realize this has been proven. This is old back from 2007. Yeah, so that's my, again, this is my, 
promotion that I want to stop the social media gaslighting and end this controversy that has been going on from 2007 because it's an SLP's job to collect our own research. And when we know better, we must do better. And we cannot solely rely on old research. For example, again, my graduate school project was on pets. We know now that was a high level of evidence. You know, my project was to write an EVP on it. Um, There is evidence on it, but we know better now. Technology, things evolve. Um, Information evolves. Um, So, you know, again, looking at the SLP setting, if they're in a hospital or in a NICU or an intensive feeding unit, their specialty is not feeding toddlers or, you know, babies. Um, So when in doubt, refer out. If it's not your specialty, that's okay. We don't have to know everything. SLP grad school made us think we have to know everything. I love how social media has been highlighting the fact that grad school is difficult and and hard on people and we're and, and limited. And limited as well. We're highlighting all these topics and it's just like we need to promote the fact that SLPs, we don't need to know everything. It's okay. We all have niches. Um, some people do motor speech. Motor speech is a huge area. Um some people do OMDs. Some people do both, like myself. And if I got a client, I can differentially diagnose motor speech and apraxia versus an OMD versus perhaps both. Because yeah. that happens. Every client presents differently. And I'm sick of having to defend myself. Yeah. And I, I try to think about these savvy posts to, to, to get them out there to, to show others that, well, hey, no, we're, there's just different areas. I'm not doing the wrong thing. I am doing evidence-based practice, you know? Um, but... Social media is hard to navigate. And like, I have two kids um, and a business and I'm working out there. I'm the one who's at home reading the books, you know, at night who cares deeply about this stuff. Okay, so we're gonna hit pause on this conversation and continue it on next week's episode where we're gonna have a little bit more of a business focus and you're gonna hear Casey and I go into a business topic. That will be followed by a mini business series that I will be doing in the upcoming weeks. So I invite you to send me a direct message on Instagram at Hallie Balkin and let me know what business topics you wanna hear about. So far, I have had inquiries about hiring, but I would love to know what you want to learn about in the upcoming business series, because this is for you all. And I love to create content that is gonna be useful and functional for you. So again, DM me directly at Hallie Balkan on Instagram. Let me know what business topics you want me to talk about and join me back here next week to continue the conversation with Casey. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you found value in this episode and want to hear more of these Myotots airway and feeding related episodes, be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcasts and share this episode on your social media platforms. You can access free resources and all I offer at HallieBalkin.com or pop over to at HallieBalkin on Instagram to get all the latest updates.